This episode of the Post-Christianity Podcast is sponsored by The Good Book Company, publisher of Making Faith Magnetic by Daniel Strange. In this new book, Strange examines five hidden themes people can't stop talking about and shows how all of them point to Christ. He also shows his readers how to spot these five themes in the culture and find new ways to share the gospel. Visit thegoodbook.com slash postpodcast to find this book and more resources that will help you engage with the culture in a thoughtful and biblical way. And use code POST at checkout to receive 25% off. That's thegoodbook.com slash postpodcast. Because they're living with this cognitive dissonance that they believe in compassion and equality and consent and enlightenment, science, freedom, progress, but we are clever chimps, essentially, yeah. and we are the product of a brutal evolution, yeah. evolutionary history, and we're clinging to an insignificant rock hurtling through a meaningless universe towards eternal extinction, and things are going to get better. You know? yeah. <laughs> and and yeah. like, okay, well, where does this progress thing and this yeah. natural reality thing come together? Well, in, in Jesus. Yeah. And, and I think theologically that works. I think historically that is how it happens, and I think Existentially, people start to see those things uniting when they come to come to Jesus. Hello and welcome to Post Christianity. My name is Glenn Scrivener. And my name is Andrew Wilson. We've been thinking about our cultural moment of uh, post Christianity and looking at that in historical perspective, and we've uh, sought the wisdom of people like Kyle Harper as he's uh, talked to us about the first sexual revolution and that movement from pre-Christian to Christian society. We've uh, spoken to Carl Truman as well and thought about uh, some of the shift from Christian to post-Christian society. Uh, We've been tracing through developments that... uh, I speak about in my book called uh, The Air We Breathe. We've been thinking about 1776 and the remaking of the world. Uh, that's uh, your book, Andrew. And really, we're, we're wanting to put a, a kind of an intellectual map out there and saying, we are here. So we've been talking for hours uh, about um, history. And now we want to land the plane a little bit and think about uh, where are we now and where do we go from here? So where does your mind first go to when you think uh, with all the weirdness of uh, Western civilization and how it's been Christianized um, in our cultural moment today? Mm. Where, where, where do we first think about some applications? Well, I love talking about this. I think this is because this is what we both do, isn't it? You want to think about, okay, so how do we, how do we share the gospel? How do we do apologetics? How do we parent kids? How do we mm. disciple people? How do we build churches, preach the gospel? All, all those sorts of things. Where my mind goes, it will not surprise you to learn, is uh, <laughs> things that I think we, just because it's what I focus on in my book, but I, I do think it can help us, um, is to think about the way in which, given the world becoming weirder the way in which the church particularly in the in the late 18th century started to think about started to respond without necessarily even knowing why they were to the world as it was developing around them and particularly i i try and draw out in the in the book and i I think it can help us today as well uh in leaning into central christian themes like grace freedom and truth they're the three big ones i pick out i think you can you see that in the the very strong emphasis on the personal experience of grace and in a previous episode with Carl Truman I talked about John you know just alluded to John Newton and people like that about how this very personal narrative individual experience Mm. um, becomes actually part of the way that we 
sing hymns and, and experience the goodness of God now. How, you know, the, the grace that saved a wretch like me. I was like this and now I'm like that. And this very real, vivid, visceral experience of grace being very increasingly central to the way that Christians told their stories. And in, the, in my book, I talk about Olaude Equiano and Newton and others, just about how like, wow, God did this for me. And it's this very personal experience of grace. And how important that is in a weirder world where the idea of a of a personal transformation is a very important story and right. it has a lot of appeal the idea and obviously it's very biblical paul says i used to be like this and now i'm like this but that that sort of very vivid emotional darkness to light transforming narrative is partly you might say is shaped by the spirit of the age but partly is just good contextualization to saying this is what god has done for me so there's a very strong emphasis on grace a very strong emphasis on freedom. We touched on talked a lot about abolitionism in a previous episode. And I think that sort of seeing the idea that actually Christianity must be Christianity is freeing or it's nothing. Now that doesn't mean that mm. all that the world calls freedom is freedom. And actually what we have to do is to broaden the Christian understanding of the, the world's understanding of freedom from simply structural forces that mm-hmm. might oppress you from the outside, mm-hmm. but saying actually you need to be freed from something inside as well. Jesus saying mm. anyone who because that's, of course, the Judeans in John 8 are like, we're not slaves. <laughs> we <laughs> we haven't been enslaved to anybody. Them. And he yeah. says, if you're a sinner, yeah. then you're enslaved to sin. Mm. But if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. And that mm-hmm. therefore there's a freedom narrative about redemption, not just from external forces, but internal ones. Mm. And then a strong emphasis on truth as well, which in our post-truth, I might, we might come back to that in a few minutes. I just think that's sort of very strong emphasis on the need to ground for all that we're saying we've sawed off the branch we're sitting on and we're trying to stay there as Christ, mm-hmm. post-christian society christian foundations is now self-evident let's move on mm-hmm. that actually a christian appeal to truth and saying you, you you have to be able to join the dots between what you claim to believe and what your foundations are and if you right. if you're trying to build on a christian foundation but you don't believe in christian foundations anymore you kind of got to acknowledge that and you've got to be able to see the connections between what you believe and what you what you actually believe and what you claim to believe and see that they're ultimately different yes that that's quite important as well so i think those are sort of three categories that i like using to think through in our preaching in our evangelism like a, the personal experience of the grace of god mm-hmm. which is increasingly important in a very workspace driven society in which status and privilege mean that people have to are just being justified by works all the time okay um can i push back on that and and then we'll go to freedom then we'll go to truth yeah but is there also a danger though where everyone's telling their transformational story and i wake up on one day and i might be a different identity that that i might put into my instagram bio today as opposed to yesterday in the personal transformation kind of markets has there not been such an inflation that's now, of course, there is a place for me to give my transformation story of darkness to light in Jesus, but it, it is also relativized by everyone's got their own story. And at, at that point, my testimony starts to be of less value, perhaps, because, yes. uh, well, that's what floats your boat. What floats my boat is that today I'm non-binary yeah. and, and I've got my own personal transformation story. So how do you balance those yeah. things? Yeah, I think yeah, there absolutely is inflation, which is why the story ultimately has to be about the grace of God rather than about yeah. your experience of change. But I think right. that the way in which Christians will typically intru- might well be, but often will be, the way we talk about the experience of change mm-hmm 
uh, will be the way of introducing the category of grace. But I think the, there is yeah. a fundamental difference, as, as, as we know, between the I have undergone, this is the thing I'm trying now, this is the way I'm trying to be me, mm. and this is the both the object of appeal to something that God has done for me rather than something I'm now trying, but also this is a status or an identity that is given to me from outside mm. myself. that yes. is not dependent on my ability to maintain it, discover it, or believe it with sufficient passion yes there's actually something that is external and I, I so i think that sort of um as a line i love it just in the last song in hamilton where eliza hamilton in the real eliza hamilton probably wouldn't have asked this question but the fictional one does because she represents lynn miranda and all of us who are watching it which is have i done enough mm. will they tell mm. my story is my story sufficiently compelling mm. have i done enough which is what the transformation stories are doing they i will find identity if I have a sufficiently dramatic way of narrating this story. Mm, mm. And if I do enough to sustain that sense of status or identity or to justify my privilege, which is a big part of the modern narrative. Right. Like, I've, look at all these privileges I got. I've, you know, I'm happily married and my parents loved each other and I've got enough money and I went to Cambridge and all this. How do I justify that? And my, mm. this is my friendship circle, partly. What does a life well-lived look like in life? And all of those, all of the time we're therefore trying to justify ourselves, but it is still justification by works. Yes. And that the grace story is to say, no, I've also got a transformation story, but it's utterly different in shape because it's right. based on the grace of God coming to me. And it isn't actually due to anything I particularly discovered or changed. My habits might be very similar today as they were yesterday. And although I think some of them hopefully will have changed, I don't look for my identity or security in those things the grace of God has appeared. It's come to me. It's come from out beyond. Right. And has right. grounded a totally different sense of identity and and actually cut the legs out from under my attempt to justify my own privilege. Yes. Or to even to ground my own... The, the, the status battles, Will Storr's book, The Status Game, I found so helpful here, like, that we are really... We just, we've got rid of an honour-shame culture but replaced it with just different ways of mm. defending status. Yeah. And even a fame-shame culture. Or, yeah, 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 and, yeah. and, and, and that that's what that's what virtue signalling is online. That's yeah. what we, we're yeah. going, I, I, I've read this and I've, I understand that and I know how to talk about this and I use the right terms for that. And it's all just basically a new middle-class status game that we all play to go, if I use that phrase, you know that I'm a little bit more aware than if I'd use that one. And and actually what happens is when the grace of God comes and says, you just don't need to think that way or to try and justify yourself that way. In fact, you cannot justify. You're far worse than that story would imply you are. That You don't just need tinkering. You need death and life and right. the grace of God. So in a right. sense, yes, it's a transformation story, but it's a transformation story where the primary actor is someone other than me. Right. And where, right. therefore, you can't have it taken away from you either. Right. And uh, But I, I think Christians need to be taught that. And I think we need to be taught a subversive form of the testimony. Because I think yes. too often we default to the hero's journey and I'm the hero. Yes. And and you get people who start inventing wilderness years in their Christian story. That oh, were, totally. That were never there. <laughs> it's hilarious, yes. I was talking to some, I've done it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've, I've done it. And I, I, was, I was talking to somebody quite recently about, um, so, you know, how did you come to faith? And he was... I was the most reluctant convert in the world and I had all yeah. these years of wilderness wandering and oh, interesting and then like literally five minutes later in the conversation he was like oh no I grew up going to church all my life and, yeah. and his wilderness years were really about you know eight months when he was dating a non-Christian and yeah. and you know and his great intellectual wrestling was was basically uh, I think he read Lee Strobel's you know yeah, yeah. Case for Christianity or something and, and that's what sort of converted. but the incentives to 
kind of absolutely emphasize the wilderness wanderings uh, are because we're wanting to tell a hero's journey and I'm the hero and I have gone down into the dark pit, but I have discovered either the intellectual credibility of Jesus or... You you know you have the 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 drugs and the gun guns and the and the you know um, car chases kind of testimonies and that kind of thing because we're all trying to be the ones who go down into the valley and then we somehow make our way back up. But the the frame I I tell Christians to put around their testimony is I couldn't have gotten through X without Jesus. Yeah. In which case, like. And, and X is whatever suffering, you know, could be lockdown, could be the series of surgeries that you've gone through in the last couple of years or whatever it is, but you're in the darkness and then the one from the outside comes. Yeah. And, and I think that's a subversive kind of, yes. of testimony that, we're, that we tell nowadays. Otherwise, as I said in a, in a former episode, um, there are Christian testimonies that sound exactly like yeah. very worldly testimonies about yeah. transformation that happen. And I think, I think we need to set ourselves apart. Both in the shape of things, I'm in the darkness, Jesus comes and meets me. And if I've grown up in a Christian home, a perfectly good testimony is, why are you a Christian today? Oh, my parents absolutely believed in Jesus and they lived like it. Yes. And it showed. Yeah. Um, and later on, I read some books and, and you know, it, it made sense to me. But we feel like we can't tell that kind of story because it doesn't foreground me and my spiritual yeah. journey. Well, what if your testimony is not meant to foreground you and your mm. spiritual journey? A, it's meant to foreground Christ. And B, if it redounds to the greater glory of your family or your church community, well, that's a great testimony, you mm. know. And if you've got swept up in the Christian community that raised you, well, that actually is a great testimony to yeah. them rather than to me. Yeah. And so all that stuff about testimony, yes, amen, I, I, I agree to it, but I, I do think there's a subversively... Yes, it has, to, it has to foreground the, the grace rather than the transformation because sometimes mm. the grace, the, the transformation, the, in some ways, sometimes the gift of grace meant that you were preserved from having to be the wretch like John Newton was, whatever. Now, mm. I, think, mm. I do think that the... I, the reason I find that the language of grace in the way it Im, is increasingly used by 18th century believers so fascinating is because they are already being shaped by and learning how to dialogue with the world in which the individual and what happens to them is incredibly important. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And in the end, your personal story is always going to be important in a culture like ours. Yes. But I think the way to, to do that in, in a wise way is not to foreground, I used to be this terrible, I have to now make myself as bad as John Newton in order to make the story work. Yes. But rather to say the grace that saved Newton and the grace saved me, saved us in very different ways, but actually it's ultimately rooted outside of the self. And that's what's uniquely Christian about it. Yes. Okay, great. So that's grace. And then freedom. I love that, uh, that we need a much richer account of freedom that is not just freedom from, but it's kind freedom, of freedom to. for. And yeah, freedom, freedom to. for. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, your excellent book with Alistair Roberts, Echoes of Exodus, you know, makes that point that the, the redemption out of Egypt yeah. is, yes, you need to get Pharaoh off your back, um, but also you, there's, there's the wilderness and, and you are to serve yeah, the Lord. golden calves and fiery snakes and all the rest. I mean, as in yeah. the, the stories only, it, it takes, you know, you effectively out of Egypt by Exodus 15. Yeah. But you don't get, but actually the wilderness, it takes a lot, the rest of Exodus, the whole of the book of Numbers, yes. a bunch of Leviticus. You think, yes. yeah, this is actually a longer process of Israel's healing yes. from the slavery within, in yes. some ways, the other gods to whom they would be captured which in many ways is the whole of the rest of the Old Testament yes. uh, fighting. So yeah. I think we are, I think a freedom narrative is very appealing to modern people, but I think we have to make it three-dimensional rather than saying it is simply once I am free from the external forces of 
you know, whatever it was that I needed to be, liber- you know, I come out of prison and now I can do whatever I want. They say, no, actually, you doing whatever you want is probably going to make you just as much of a slave right. as you being physically forced not to do certain things because there is slavery is just is multifaceted. It's not only external. It's in fact, the internal one is often worse. Yes. Um, and I love the Hunger Games here because and I talk about this mm-hmm. in the book. And I just find it really interesting that you can be enslaved in the in the sense that Katniss and the people are in the districts. Um, this is a 1984 vision of slavery. You're like you are there are mm-hmm. guns and cameras and you can't do anything without someone making you do something else. But then there's also slavery in the brave new world sense. In the mm. the people in the capital are also enslaved to just sort of carnal desires and hey, let's eat all eat all night and then vomit so we can eat again and you know the drinking sort of fatuous banal television and yeah the brave new mm. world vision of well the bumble puppy and all this stuff. You just think some of that it just exposes something much deeper that's wrong with us mm. and the way that people can yeah even just scrolling. Is it, I mean, mm. how people, you feel like if you try and say to somebody, just put away your phone or just mm. stop consuming that sort of thing, mm. how enslaved people are to that. And that particularly when it comes to something like sex, where freedom, the freedom narrative makes it sound like the, the way to be free is to just have sex with whoever you want. I think people become enslaved and often actually have far more f- fulfilled lives and even sometimes even fulfilled sex lives by saying no to things than by saying yes to things and just being able to be free from the thing that would enslave them to do more of the thing that they feel makes them happy knowing that actually happiness is a a result of a a freedom from internal passions and not just external ones which is such a biblical idea yeah yeah i think we have to show and even using freedom language to describe that process is i think very important in discipleship yes and we saw that with kyle harper talking historically about the impact of virgins free will yeah in the early church and that actually the yeah free will was first a a phrase that was used in conjunction with christians who are exploring the fact that you can say no to this biological imperative and this very social imperative yes um, to not be a virgin, and those who said no were exercising a supernatural, superhuman kind of free will in resisting sexual urges. And yes. so, like when we think of sexual freedom, <laughs> we think it's the freedom to indulge our sexual yeah. passions. And in a biblical and, and historical sense, it's it's the freedom to say no to those libidinous desires that yeah. are just kind of washing through the culture. Yeah. Um, so freedom. Grace and then truth. Yeah, um, we're living in a tr- post-truth age, though, Andrew. That's not that's not going to go down well, is it? Well, this is the thing. I, I think I, personally, I think people post-truth is usually, in, at least in in our context in Britain, maybe that there's some people who are big fans of post-truth, but usually it's used with a lot of criticism. It's like post post-truth is a way of describing other people's disconnection from reality rather than a sense of isn't it great none of us really believe things and 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 most of what we call post-truth is really post-trust i think it's it's more a critique of the organs of the trusted institutions and arbiters of good judgment in society of the last hundred years whether it be a mainstream media outlet or a particular form of scientific community the, these people that everyone trusted and the church clearly are not trusted in the same way you know people say i've lost my faith in science and progress they say i've lost my faith in the holy church but if i ever lose my faith in you you know um, yeah, yeah and yeah. Uh, that i think it's that it's like a loss of trust in the people we used to trust and i actually think post-truth is a strong a strong point for uh 
for Christians to lean into, not just because we do believe in truth and other, but in many ways we've seen this as we've done this series already and in previous episodes, that there is a very strong impulse to say these things are true, these things are false, that is lies. That actually really? yeah. in response, whether it be a response to Donald Trump or a response to just m- fake news, misinformation, people say, I want to believe in, in truth. I don't want what I believe to be untrue and I certainly don't want to act like I don't care. Hmm. But the, what the church can and, and should do is not just say, well, this is a different vision of truth. I think 20 years ago, lots of people were concerned. There will be, I'll be this is my truth, tell me yours, that sort of thing. Hmm. But yeah. that that isn't really, even though people still use the language of here's my truth, that what they really mean is this is what happened to me and you need to value that story. But they don't mean there's no such thing as truth and no one cares what it is. Mm-hmm. The reason they're telling you the story is because they think this is true and it did happen to me and you should mm-hmm. care. Mm-hmm. And that what Christians then need to do, I think, is to see that there is within society a very strong desire to to join up what they say they believe with what is in fact the case so that the moral imperative for justice or for mm. uh, for action to do something, particularly mm. amongst younger people, is warranted by the way the world truly is, rather than just being, well, you happen to like campaigning on that issue. doesn't really worry me. But right. you start talking to young people like that or anyone about racial justice or about the environment or about mm-hmm. you, people go no 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 I, I don't i'm not saying this just because i happen it happens to be one thing i'm into mm-hmm. i want you to believe that this needs to be done mm-hmm. and that is a as a powerful opportunity for christians because in the end that you know the sort of back to ben franklin and his self-evident he's saying it isn't self-evident that these things the reason why you believe that people are equal and that there should be justice for the poor and oppressed is because of christian convictions about the world that ultimately are ontologically true they are grounded in the being of god they are grounded in the way the world is created and if you want to sustain those convictions and you should yeah you just need to find their roots in who god really is yes and and if you do what Johan Harari does in the, in the oh, sorry Johan, Yuval. Yuval Harari I'm getting confused um, what he does in Sapiens where he just says oh no this is you know in the end it's not true but we are a post truth species we just got to go with it anyway yeah, yeah. people go no that, you it's only if you've got a huge amount of money and privilege that you can get away with that if you're contending against serious injustices in the world you have to believe that this is grounded in reality. And there's a huge opportunity for Christians there to say that instinct you have is correct, but it's grounded in a different, better story Yes, that is fundamentally true. Yes, And this Christian story gives you foundations for what you want to believe that is far stronger than what you get if you... Yes. If you swallowed the sort of the materialist line about the way the world is. Yes. Yeah. And and maybe Athanasius is a, a real help in this. You know, the in the beginning of on the incarnation, the self same word who made us in the beginning yeah. came to us in redemption, and and that integration of. Um, Grace and truth, that integration of um, the, the, the logos of this world, the logic of this world, who became flesh, who became embodied, and holds together these realms of, of nature and grace yeah. um, that, that are so kind of contested these days. And, and you know, we've mentioned on a, on a previous episode that it, it seems like the Christianization of culture has left us with beliefs in compassion and equality and human rights and progress and the secular, yeah. none of which are derivable from nature, none, none of which are the, the, you know, none of which can be logically demonstrated, but they yeah. are beliefs, they are belief yeah. commitments, and in that sense, they are supernatural. Um, so we're very sure about that. We're not so sure about nature yeah. and biology, and if someone starts to make a claim about what 
is actually natural. That's the most contested claim of all. Like, yeah. how dare you say what is natural? And people are very suspicious of, of those sorts of claims. So we have this sort of sense of some kind of grace, supernatural kind of kind of stuff and beliefs and, and dogma. And we have the realm of the of the the natural. And then you get trad types who like are sick of trans ideology let's say and it's the it's the reassertion of nature yeah. and it's just and and that can get pretty ugly it's the manosphere just, the manosphere right that can get very ugly and so you just get nature or you just get grace in which biology means absolutely nothing and and you know society and 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 family bonds don't really mean anything what really is is what really counts is your internal sense of your own identity and that's just sort of all grace and and here comes Athanasius reflecting on John chapter 1 and and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us and this sense of the supernatural and the natural together in Christ and that might sound like really esoteric but I was just really encouraged that this Easter Mary Harrington uh, who's written a new book called Feminism Against Progress is pressing into all these issues about nature and grace and she's finding herself in some really interesting places and with some really interesting allies in, in terms of doing, you know, writing for first things and, and finding herself, you know, doing book launches with, you know, Christian organizations all around her. And she wrote a thing at Easter uh, about, you know, the, the great hope for the West seems to be this thing where the word became flesh. That, you, that there is a place where this stuff coheres and consists yeah. and it's grounded. And because we don't want to get rid of grace, we don't get, want to get rid of compassion and equality and all these, these great things. We don't, we don't want to descend into the manosphere. Um, but we also, want to, we also want to honor biological reality and our nature. And mm. people have a nature, don't they? And there's a, such a thing as human. We can't just, you know, we can't just go t- towards being post-human, can we? Where where are we going to go if we're going to unite yeah. these two things together? And Mary Harrington is saying, well, I guess kind of Jesus, yeah. <laughs> maybe. And yeah. That'll be interesting to see where that journey ends. Oh, man, it really will. I did some work in the in the book on um, a, a very unknown uh, late 18th century uh, figure called Johann Georg Harman, who's a German philosopher who does a lot of that and, and in a completely different register. But again, is is talking about the centrality of the incarnation for really thinking about Christian truth and a Christian account of grace. And he's really the first person to give like a what he calls a meta critique of the Enlightenment. He's a friend of Kant's. He's Hegel and Kierkegaard and all these guys think he's a, a genius, the brightest man who ever lived along with Socrates. Mm. They, they just give him these crazy yeah. epithets of, and of course in the English speaking world, almost no one's heard of I've him. I've never but, heard of him. But he has a, <laughs> yeah. this extraordinary conversion experience reading the Bible and he gets saved while reading, I think it's Deuteronomy 5 or something really, but really odd text read like, no, yeah. you're the only guy ever getting saved reading that. Has this extraordinary experience, reads the Bible and writes a commentary on it in the first three months of his Christian life and then basically undertakes this hugely intellectually impressive uh, kind of side broadside against enlightenment thinking and its separation of ultimately what he thinks of as word and flesh. You see, you've basically separated out the ideal from the real and your problem is really that you haven't reckoned with the incarnation. He talks a lot about language and says that every time we have a conversation, we combine ideas and the real. You and I are talking now because molecules are moving and this, but they're also expressing abstract ideas. And if you just thought about that, you'd say the reason why words do that is because the word does that. And in Christ, word and flesh are united. So we're not Gnostics and we're not 
ultimately idealist or realist we we, we do mm. we do both together every time we have a conversation mm. and we see mm. both united in jesus and that actually that's the sort of account of truth that what the the modern world is trying to do and in Harmon's day and in ours in many ways is to sort of keep the world of the bodily and the real distinct right. from the world of the ideal and the pure and that actually as soon as you have an incarnate christ you've mm. just got these two worlds come together which back mm. to the thing about mm. sex and masculinity and femininity is to say mm. yeah nature and grace are in that sense made perfect in jesus mm. and the incarnation is the sort of the focal point from which theological inquiry needs to flow mm. and Harmon's just a genius because he's able to see that yeah well, lightheart has this lovely line on him he says it takes a prophet to contribute to debates 200 years before they start <laughs> and Harmon is like that but i think that is again in in a in a world that's sort of wanting to wrestle with the grace nature distinction as you've laid it out and the and even post truth that the incarnation is really the center point and it, that's why I, I like what you said about Athanasius I just think yeah that's that's where we have to begin and not just in the abstract register of thought like this but actually just in ordinary conversations with ordinary people because they're living with this cognitive dissonance that they believe in compassion and equality and consent and enlightenment science freedom and progress but but we are clever chimps essentially yeah. and we are the product of a brutal evolution yeah. evolutionary history and we're clinging to an insignificant rock hurtling through a meaningless universe towards eternal extinction and things are going to get better you know? yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah. like Okay, well, where does this progress thing and this yeah. this natural reality thing come together? Well, in in Jesus, yeah. and, and I think theologically that works. I think historically that is how it happens, and I think existentially people start to see those things uniting when they come to come to Jesus. Yeah. So, how, can you talk about you? You talk a lot, and I like it about joining dots and helping people see the connections between which i know is what you've just done in that in that way which is really helpful of yeah this is the material story you're told this is the ideal story you're told they don't actually make sense together unless you bring the two together in christ can you give examples though of how you do that in if you like ordinary day-to-day -day evangelism your yeah, neighbors yeah. your kids your yeah. school you know yeah. people at the school gate ordinary life you do this a lot well, it, it, let, let me first of all tell you a story that um, <laughs> um, there's, there's no skill involved with the evangelist here. But I think in this cultural moment, there are certain fish that are jumping into the boat, um, whatever the fisherman does. And so a guy at the, a guy at the school gates um, just said to me the other day, um, uh, I, I was talking about uh, the king's coronation and we were having a, a, a picnic at church and you know he's very welcome to that and he says you know i've been thinking about coming to church for a while now and he, and he i said why he said well it it just seems to me like christianity um has absolutely built the modern world and i don't know a single thing about it <laughs> <laughs> and i was like well church would be exactly the right place yeah. for you you know and sadly he didn't he didn't come uh, to that, but you know, we're, we're, we're still friends and we're, we're on that journey. But but he is representative of a lot of people who are in this cultural moment who are kind of waking up to um, the the fact that we are not um, these neutral people who just happen to be Westerners in a totally secular sense, but but that we are the heirs of a Christian heritage, and to be unaware of our origins is is to be a barbarian to some degree. Yes. So this 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 guy emblematic of there was another guy i i saw um at a church i was preaching at in another part of the country and he just came up to me afterwards and he said um thank you for the air we breathe it was given to me by uh, a guy i met in the queue 
for the Queen's, uh, like seeing the Queen lying in state. And so two, two very royal um, examples here. But he had 12 hours to wait in the queue to see the Queen lying in state. And he happened to be right next to a, a church pastor um, who was also in Sussex. But um, they, Who had a copy of your book. Who had, a, who had read my book and was just having this conversation with this other guy and, and just got into a conversation about... Right. Um, why are we here really? And like, what is this connecting us with? And, and I think certainly in, in, in the UK, there are a lot of people who, through the death of the Queen and the coronation of, of King Charles III, um, are thinking a, a lot about um, the religious heritage of this, of this country. And after 12 hours in the queue with this guy, my friend then sent him a copy of The Air We Breathe. And at the end of The Air We Breathe, it just says, why don't you read the Gospels? And he read the Gospels and said, right, I'm a Christian now. And wow. started, going, started going to church. And, I, and, and so there's a cultural moment that's happening yeah. among some people. I mean, the, the rest is history is, you know, uh, hands down the biggest history pod- podcast, you know, ar- around the world. And it's one of the most popular podcasts on Apple Podcasts. And, and you know, Tom Holland is, is sort of pushing that thesis. And there are a lot of people who are at least awakened to the fact that, oh, gosh, if I'm a lot more Christian than I thought, I better understand a little bit more about this. Yeah. So there's that. And then, then you know, the other day I was on a, a, a plane journey and uh, a guy I was with... Uh, works for a human rights charity, okay? And so just pressing into that. And, yeah. you know, do you ever wonder you know, where they're from? And if we're, if we're highly evolved apes, why does that mean we have human rights? He's like, I hadn't thought about that. It's like we had, we had a very long uh, conversation on, wow. on that plane flight, you know, gave, gave him the air we breathe, and we've been in touch you know, since then. And, and so th- there, are, there are ways of, of pressing into this. But, you know, even with my, you know, my next-door neighbor is um, uh, my next door neighbor doesn't have GCSEs. He, um, it's, he's not a human rights lawyer, right? <laughs> you know, he's not, yeah. he's not, he's not thinking in, in these categories at all. But um, uh, we were just on the porch together. We share a, we share a porch on our, on our street. And, um, and he showed me this, this Facebook, you know, video of, um, one of the one of these beautiful moments that you see every now and again, where where where, for instance, someone someone profoundly autistic, for instance, is brought onto a basketball team, and you know they get you know handed yeah. the basketball, and you know they shoot and they miss, but the the opposition like hand them the ball back, and he shoots and he misses again. They hand they hand him back the third time, and he shoots, and the, the you know the the roof goes off in the in the gymnasium, and like the the goosebumps yeah. that are on and, and I was like what do you think why do you think we re- react like that and he said oh it's just beautiful but well, why what, what is it and we just ended up having this very long conversation about there's something supernatural about that yeah. because the natural thing is well this guy would not make the cut yeah. he's you know what, why, why is he on the on the yeah. court um, naturally speaking, um, this is this is bonkers, and you know his his friend, it, the, the opposition is is you know handing him the ball. But this is supernatural. This is grace. This is the inversion. And we started having having a conversation around the fact that um, natural life is the survival of the fittest and the sacrifice of the weakest. The Jesus story is it's the sacrifice of the fittest Christ for the survival of we the weakest so that we can not just survive but thrive and pass on this compassion yeah. to others. And I think the reason why you've got goosebumps 
while you watch that is that you are in touch with something very Jesus-y. Yeah. Very, and it is supernatural. You might not think you believe in the supernatural. And as, as it turns out, he did believe in the supernatural. But I was like, the, very, the shape of what is supernatural there is incredibly Jesus-like. Yeah. And, and we, we got on to talk about Jesus, and, and, yeah. and away we go. And, and um, he's you know, wanted to get baptized, and he's you know, coming to church. And it's, praise God. Praise God for that. And <laughs> the other day he shows me his phone. He's like, I was like, what's that? He said, I think it's a poem. And I was looking at, I think it's a song. And then, and then he was like, do you, do you, are you musical? I was like, oh, yeah, let's go in. We like picked up the guitar and we started. He has written now nearly 50 songs <laughs> in, the la- in the last three months as, as you know, he's getting excited about Jesus. But, um, so just to give you an example of, of you yeah. know, the, there, are, there are fish that jump into the boat because of the cultural moment that we're in. And there are people who are interested in the big ideas, like the human rights lawyer. And then there are just people who show you a meme on Facebook. Yeah. Um, but I think all of them are testifying to the, the post-Christian yeah. moment that we're in. I think. Yeah, they are. And it's wonderful because actually in all, in all three of those stories, you know, I think a very early episode in this series, we talked about the, the fact that it's much more com- it can feel much more compelling to say to somebody, here's what you believe and here's why you're right, yep. than here's what yep. you believe and here's why you're wrong. And obviously there's, in all of us, including you and me, there's some, some things we believe are, are right and some are wrong. But it's such a wonderfully evangelistic offer. And I, uh, similarly, we were obviously recording this soon after the King's coronation. We watched it with uh, a, a group of friends of ours who aren't believers. But it's just fascinating how you just, mm. even you can explain, you're just giving commentary on things that other people experience and saying, here's a way of thinking about that feeling or that institution or that ceremony or just mm. weddings, funerals. I mean, I, I, as a pastor, I just find this such, the, the, the the gap between heaven and earth seems to become thinner. Mm. Births, deaths, and marriages, as the church has always done. Mm. You just there's mm. something about giving birth to a person or seeing a newborn baby. There's something about uh, committing a, a person's body to the deep or to, yeah. into the ground or into to the flames or whatever it is. But that just makes that and something about marriage as well, which just mm. is of course it images Christ in the church as we all know. But it it, it also just seems to make people's the gap between. Again, the ideal and the real, or like the, you know, the world, the word and the flesh. It just seems to get the gap gets smaller. People, I'm not quite calling it an incarnation, but you know what I mean. It it makes people seem like, oh yes, this sort of this paradigm we live with, in which there is the world of things that actually happen. I eat, I sleep, I yeah. have sex, I whatever I may be, yeah. and then there's this world of things I believe and ideas and mystical. Right. And it, right. it just they, they seem to become collapsed into one another for yes. a moment, and people go, hang yes. on a second, it's the same world. Like yes. it's as if that's that. Yeah. We really are meant to have those realms integrated. Yes. Um, yes. And the value, in fact, are one and the same thing. And yes. incarnation. And, and you just, it, it's wonderful. So you're able to comment and say, do you know what? That touches, that, that's a witness in your spirit to the fact that there is something very, now obviously not every, very significant taking place. Not every nation has quite the coronational pageantry that we have just had in the last week and obviously many weeks we don't either but there are so many you look for them there are so mm-hmm. many ceremonies liturgies expressions in popular culture yes of, as you just said one one of those things but you know was just a 
uh, you know, thing about an autistic kid throwing a yeah. basketball. So it's, yeah. it's not, yeah, they yeah. don't have to be massive moments of national pageantry to work, but you're, you're providing an explanation for a resonance that exists in the human soul that's very fundamental. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, and, and I found that yeah. very fruitful. You're awakening, you're awakening them to the fact that they are believers. Like one, one, of, yes. one of the inspirations for me writing The Air We Breathe was a, a friend writing to me and, and saying, of course, you realize, Glenn, I could never be a believer. And, and just <laughs> recognizing that she lives her life by all sorts of beliefs, but she's just, she doesn't think of herself in those terms. Yeah. And she thinks that I've made a leap of faith and that she hasn't, as though she lives like at ground level, navigating her life via reason and yes. evidence, which, which nobody does. Yeah. You know, you, we, we treat one another as though they are individuals with rights. Or if you don't have beliefs that can't be grounded in some something like that, then you, you become like what Carl Truman a few episodes ago was calling it, like you become a psychopath. You're going, yeah. if you actually yeah. only acted on the evidence you have yeah. of the strong eat the weak, right. you, you're yeah. not a pleasant yeah. person in the slightest. No right. one wants you to be lucky that guy. Decide, so you of course yeah. you're, exactly. So of course you're a believer. Yeah. It's yeah. fascinating. Um, and that doesn't mean that she's a believer in Jesus and she yeah. needs to come to know. But but for so many people, they, they just don't think in that category. And they think that there are people of faith like me and I've managed to sort of, you know, drum up enough spiritual energy. I've got the force coursing through my vein. Midi-chlorians are in my blood or whatever it is, <laughs> you know. And, and sometimes, you know, she looks at me and she thinks she's dodged a bullet. And sometimes she looks at me and she thinks that I've hit the jackpot. But, but I'm yeah. a different category of person because yeah. I'm a believer and she's not uh-uh yeah. you're a believer you believe in the supernatural because of compassion it's not grace in nature and, right right um you believe in things that are incredibly jesus shaped um but you have this cognitive dissonance because you you, you don't need to take a leap you're already mid-air you need some ground beneath your feet and let me introduce you to jesus i think that's that's a different yes. strategy evangelistically yes. And I think it works in preaching as well. Like, and so this is obviously my, you know, my, both of us are preachers and I, I'm a you know, pastor of a church. So you, but I think you can regular, I'm at, my guess would be that on the, a number of the listeners to this podcast are preachers as well. And actually, I just find myself continually saying, oh, that's where you get this. That's where this idea, that's where you get that from. Mm. So you're in almost any book of the, I was, I'm in Hosea at the moment. And it's just amazing even there, the number of times you can say, oh, that idea that is, I mean, even in our, in our culture today. I just, you know, mercy is better than sacrifice or whatever. You'd, mm -hmm. Things like, you might not have heard that phrase, but actually the idea that you'd say the essence surely of religion is that you're showing kindness to the poor rather than that you're offering animal sacrifices is a very strange idea. But look, here, here's where it comes from. Yeah, and you're just yeah, continually yeah, yeah. going back to these things. And it is so helpful as a preacher to be able to say, I'm not just looking here for things that believe that Christians need to understand and to be able to live better. But in every text, I've got things that are, that have shaped the world in which unbelievers live. Yes. So that, and in our church, we, you know, we, we do surveys. We know that like 10% of the people who come to our church are not actually Christians or wouldn't say they were. And that's, that's quite a large percentage of people that I then feel like every time I'm over for a non-conformist church, it is. Yeah, <laughs> in an well, Anglican church, it's they it's might it's think it's they are Christians, <laughs> and they aren't. So that might that's a very different it's problem. The, the ninety ten is yeah, yeah. <laughs> but so and, and so you realise actually I'm in dialogue here with people who are aware that there are things about Christianity they don't believe, but there are many things in Scripture in almost every time I get up and read the Bible that are providing foundations for things. Yes. And and this is back to your thing about joining the dots between things you believe and things that the reasons why you should believe them, mm. but you might not just not have seen the connections. And it's so helpful. So I yes. think it works in yes. pre public preaching as well yes. as ordinary evangelism. Yeah, and what's... 
helped my preaching more generally is to see the scriptures as what John Calvin called them, spectacles through which you see um, life. You you see God and you see the world in a different light through the spectacles of the scriptures so that your vision doesn't terminate upon the text, but through the text you are interpreting God and the world. Now take that to these issues and... If you really recognize that this, bo- this world has been built by this book, then you, you, look at, um, you look at the problems of this world and you see that, yes, the scriptures have an answer to them, but the scriptures have formed the very issues that we're dealing with in the culture. So the other day I was preaching on uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and, and you know, one body, many parts. And I, I think before I thought about the air we breathe type stuff, I, I think I just would have preached that normally as this is about you know church and, and it is right um, but now I begin with how do you figure out diversity inclusion and equality such a conundrum isn't it and everyone's leaning in at that point right because the reason why we've even attempted to have diverse communities of equals who are all included <laughs> the only reason we've attempted yeah. this is because of 1 Corinthians 12 yeah. and Galatians 3 and you know the, the the scriptures have given us the problem and you know we we have twisted and perverted and detached ourselves from the the scriptural truths that are there and we're we're faced with the problems of this world but in returning to the original there there is just such a resonance with people and so you you i think you preach 1 corinthians 12 in a in a different way that 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 doesn't mean that the point of 1 corinthians 12 is how you run your die you know at in in the workplace um but it it certainly does dei because we're worried about die the possible (laughs) acronym problems (laughs) (laughs) but yeah yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's it's funny. The um, I can't remember. Is it? It's just is it Keller that says you need to say yes, but no, but yes. Or mm-hmm. have I got that from someone else? I don't remember who it. Is. It sounds like the kind of thing he'd do. Yeah. But I found again preaching and personal discussion. It's just it, it's it's harder to do in personal discussion because it's spontaneous. But the idea that you're saying uh, and it's great. What you just said is a great example. That you mm, right. you see you see something in the world and you say yes, I want to affirm right. the desire right. for right. that thing. Right. But no, that's not ultimately the way to get it. And right. the reasons are there's an inconsistency there with the way you're ultimately seeing the world. Right. But yes, in that if yes. you come to Christ and you see it right. through the lens of Scripture, you get what you wanted, but yes. you don't get it. You actually get it better than you would have if you got it the other way. Yeah. And that sort of yeah. re- yes, but no, but yes. And that's exactly what I did because yeah. I, I kind of said we who are baptized baptized into Christ are baptized into one body and I was like you know what we don't get about diversity inclusion and equality is on the basis of saying sorry on the basis yeah. of actually confessing to sin and that's the democratizing thing yes. so that it's not my oh, identity really that I bring to the table because if the problem with DIE without baptism without Christ yeah. is I come is, as me you've got come, to accept everything you've got about to accept me. everything about me and then I did this illustration about Christmas you know everyone's welcome at our Christmas but our Christmas has a shape to it you know and if you want to do Christmas your way, I want to do Christmas my way, he wants to do Christmas his way, it's going to be an absolute you know, pandemonium and chaos. And we are baptized into Jesus. And, and I said, you know, you've got to come through Sorry River before you get to Begin Again land. And, and that's, that's the shape. So it was very much a yes, no, and yes, yeah. because I guess it's a gospel law gospel kind of thing. Mm. You know, and I think Keller, Keller very helpfully gets us to see that law and gospel, the first part of a law um, 
kind of proclamation in a law and gospel sweep is to say about the goodness of the law, right? There's, there's, there's something really good about this value um, and we don't fulfill it. Yeah. And in Christ, you know, he does it for us and now we can in him. And so gospel, law, gospel is that shape. And so yes, yes and no and yes, um, that would that would make I a lot of sense. That. But yeah. I mean, and that is, yeah. So I think that there's... We've talked a bit about evangelism mm-hmm. in ordinary life. We talked a bit about preaching. We talked a bit about the conceptual frame behind it. Mm. Any just final things on the from you? Do you think on the because I think you've done well in particularly over the last few years. You've helped me certainly at challenging the church where needed on thinking about our response to just about how we have responded and how we where we've not done well as the church in a, right. in a post-christian moment anything to kind of speak into that and just areas where you think ecclesially or like as the corporate family of god yeah. when you just go these are some things just i was going to say easy wins that's probably the crass way of saying it but yeah. things that we need to make sure in addition to this sort of the more apologetic ideally back mm, and forth mm, and mm. in addition also to mm. some of the things we talked about with carl truman about embodiment hospitality friendship other things you just think these are areas where I just think we need to to get the church right mm. to help us in a post-Christian moment. Well, I, I think Keep Sunday Special um, is a really interesting phrase that used to, in the United Kingdom, uh, be the slogan for a movement to um, to alter or to, to maintain Sunday trading laws. Yeah. And so, you know, in, in the UK, it's still the case that Sunday trading laws are different to the rest of the week. Um, but it, it used to be that you... You know, pretty much most shops were shut on on a Sunday, and there was a great movement that was um, spearheaded by Christians um, to say, uh, "Let's keep Sunday special." And I, I'm really interested in that phrase because I was thinking the other day about what we need in our cultural moment as the church. I think we need to keep Sunday special. But I don't think in terms of let's worry about Sunday trading laws, you know, um, and, and maybe you think it's a justice issue to campaign for better Sunday trading laws. And maybe you think an always on society is no good for the, the workers in Tesco's and the supermarkets. Great. OK, so that there, there is a case to be made for making that argument in the public square. But as the public square and the church become more and more different um, it's a threat to us. It's also an opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to be really, really weird. And, you know, I, I finished my book by talking about, you know, the acronym WEIRD. And I kind of say, well, just by virtue of being a Westerner, you're weird in that Western educated, industrialized, rich democratic sense. The church is called to be properly weird, you know, not just to believe in equality in an abstract sense, but what, what does equality in our church look like what yes. does compassion look like in our in our church and our mercy ministries and and that sort of thing and so let's let's kind of be properly weird in our church and let us let's make let's make 52 mini christmases you know <laughs> and it, it you know we don't have to burn ourselves out you know going to going to great expense about it but let's make these 52 oases in the in in the hurly-burly of everyday life in which um, there are no boundaries, there are no thick lines anymore. We don't, we don't stop something and then start it again. 
Well, the church can and the church should, and let us really Sabbath well mm-hmm. together on a Sunday and, and make it something that our families just love to be at. And then the, that 10% who come to your church, they, they feel that sense of freedom, yes. They feel that sense of grace, yes. They feel that sense of truth, yes. And, and they feel that sense of rest. You know, here, here is a place that resists the, the conveyor belts, mm. you know, t- towards productivity and pragmatism and, and is able to rest together as family. And I think if, if we can kind of capture that in our local churches, I, yeah. I, I think that's so attractive in our modern day, modern day. Yeah, that's well said. So we've thought about uh, preaching and evangelism and church life. What about family, Andrew? Yeah, I, I think this. I think the same is true. We have to think through parenting in a post-Christian context. And I, what I found encouraging, actually, I think the hardest age probably to parent was um, maybe ten or fifteen years ago, when suddenly issues that you didn't talk to your children about age six or seven come up when the child is twelve or thirteen, and you realise I haven't talked to them about this yet. Hmm. Now, that was hard, and I feel for those brothers and sisters who were in that position. I think the nice thing about being where we are now in a very explicitly post-Christian way is that my, I mean, it wasn't nice, but my five-year-old made fun of me for being, he said, you're non-binary or something. I can't remember. He he just, he'd heard it at school at the age of five. And I think, okay, we're now going to have to have that conversation a lot earlier than we did. That's an example in sexual ethics. But actually, generally, I think the anthropology and value system of the of a post-Christian society that is very explicitly teaching children, at least in my case, they're in state schools. I know that would not be the story for everybody, but it is in, in Britain, it's very common. Um, but it means actually I've got the opportunity to talk much younger than I did mm-hmm. with my 14-year-old, who, and he's been fine as well. Um, and I just think that's sort of leading into rather than leaning away from the very sticky areas where you say, well, actually, this, Sam, this is a really good feature of what's being taught. And we really like that. This is that's not true at all, is it? But this bit comes from the Bible. You know, that bit there, this mm-hmm. bit here, that's not right, though, is it? And, but actually, you get to do that when, in many ways younger because the issues are being raised much younger um, in the form of the catechesis and that, that is coming on to kids so what you have to develop is I think it I uh, can't remember where the term comes from but the, the concept of counter catechesis where you're saying every catechism is designed to try and respond to an error in thinking in the Protestant Reformation it was Catholicism but today it might be the ethics that you're being catechized into a school and on all sorts of issues particularly in sort of sexual ethics and so you get to do counter catechesis with a six or seven year old and that i think is probably a great opportunity in terms of discipleship to say we can initiate these things because you are being asked about this you're not it's not you're not cringeworthy yet because you're so young you want to ask you want to talk about it with me and it's a good opportunity so i think there's so many ways in which living in a post-christian moment means we need to think creatively about how we lean towards mm. the areas of conflict and difference affirm what's good and again it's yes but no but yes in the context of parenting right right and to do so intentionally in a way that we weren't forced to be intentional about that aspect of our parenting before now but no, yeah no, the con- not at all the conflict makes us think more intentionally more christianly well Andrew, uh, we have covered a lot of ground uh, over the course of this podcast, and uh, we uh, really thank uh, you guys for uh, joining us uh, over the course of these podcasts. We'd really love uh, for you to spread the word about them, so please do uh, share on social media and uh, get the word out. Uh, Post-Christianity is a podcast of the Keller Center, which is a ministry of the Gospel Coalition. Thank you very much for joining us, Andrew. Thanks so much. Thanks, Glenn.